Hello everybody and welcome to Uncommon Thinking. This is the eighth and final um, edition or part of our journey through Acts chapter 17. And um, we're going to finish with the last three verses here, 29 through 31. Now I know the chapter actually doesn't end at verse 31, but by the end of verse 31 I've said pretty much uh, what I wanted to say. So um, I wanted to go ahead and finish it here. So, as I normally do, uh, I'll begin by reading the actual text. This is the New International Version, and then we'll uh, move into some points um, at a greater level of detail from the actual text itself. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Now, as I said, the chapter actually continues a little bit further, and let me just give you a a really quick synopsis of what happens between uh, that point and the end of the chapter Basically, when he says the part about being raised from the dead, a lot of the, well, some of the people in the audience, um, the, the word that's used in Greek there is kind of funny. It says that they stuck out their lower lip. So if you can kind of visualize somebody kind of doing a fft sort of noise, you know, like, yeah, really. Um, that's what some of them did. But then some of them said, you know what? We want you to come back. We want to hear more about this. We're, we are still curious. And then some of them were actually convinced. And uh, the end of the chapter actually names a few of them that actually uh, accepted the gospel message at that time. But we're going to focus on what he says in 29, 30, and 31, because that's really the end of his soliloquy there, at least the part that's recorded by the author of Acts. So what's wonderful, I think, first of all, about this conclusion that Paul gives us is how he so very carefully set the table for everything he asserts. For every conclusion he draws in these three verses, he has carefully set the table. First, he connects the ideas of the Stoics. Remember, we talked about those in a private or in a previous uh, episode. He connects those to the man-made point that he had previously made when talking about the man-made temples and the man-made gods, showing that it was ridiculous, really, to believe that a god that humans had created could have any sort of power at all. Now, what's, what often makes me smile when I make that point uh, is that it's exactly the same argument that, that uh, non-believers will make, because, of course, they are going to assert that Christians have created God, that we have created uh, Jesus, much like, any, most like much of the other religious systems in the world over the, over the history of earth have done. And so, you know, I can almost see someone who's maybe a non-believer listening to this episode saying, well, aren't you doing the same thing? And I totally understand that. That's a debate for another time. We could certainly have that talk. But the premise here of this particular soliloquy is that Paul is arguing that, in fact, he has evidence to demonstrate that Jesus was real, that God was real, And he has evidence that you or I in 2021 just don't have because we didn't live then and we aren't Paul. So while we could certainly have that debate down the road, this is just absolutely not the place for it. 
Okay. Um, the only way this works, really, the only way any religious system works is if its concept of God is of a deity that is transcendent to our experience, something that exists over and above the dimensions of reality that we know about. Any God that's, that's contained in the same dimensions of reality in which we're contained simply cannot be any more powerful than we are. Because the Christian God is defined both by himself and by the scriptures as being transcendent of that, existing outside of time and space. That's the only way that, that the Christian conception of God works. And if you read the Greek and Roman mythologies as well as many other mythologies, at some level all of those gods seem to be bound by the same sorts of rules that we are. So he was really appealing to the Stoics there with that first sort of statement about gold and silver and stone. He uses the word ignorance here. Now, he could have chosen others. He could have chosen rebellion or a host of other things, but he says ignorance. And I think he says that because he's very aware that God is paying some sort of homage and respect and grace to the search itself. See, that's what grace is about. Even people who have been believers for years and years were continually searching for him, continually groping and reaching out for him. And, and on our own, we fall painfully short. Those in the Christian community have been uh, reminded of that recently with the revelations that we've heard about a very famous Christian apologist, Ravi Zacharias, and, and now the revelations are coming out about the thorn in his side that he, that he fought with and that he struggled with and that he lost the battle with many times. But I think God reaches down in his grace, even though he knew all about Ravi's difficulties with sin. He reaches down in his grace and he still enables that man for a 40-year career to deliver such positive and powerful messages about the faith. God doesn't ask the people who talk about faith to be perfect. He knows that we are all struggling and searching and reaching out and sometimes we are going to fall flat on our face. His grace covers that gap, and it allows us to know him for who he is to the best that we can in that moment. See, rebellion means that we would have known all that and rejected him anyway. But he looks at the Greek pantheon of gods and says, these people are not rejecting God. They simply just can't see him yet. And so Paul's basically saying to them, this, this is what you have been looking for. It's what you stopped looking for and then created things in place of. You were so close. Really important phrase later, he says, he will judge the world with justice. And that is actually in the, the text. That's extremely important because one of the things that the Stoics valued above almost anything else was justice. It was the aspiration in their view of all humans to seek and maintain that justice, largely through natural, moral, and ethical law. Any judgment that Paul would talk about, that the Hebrew God was going to bring down on people, it would have to be a just judgment, or he would have lost all of the Stoics right then. 
So those two words are important, and he put them in there for a reason because he knew who he was talking to. Finally, Paul says that the resurrection was the proof, quote-unquote, of God's activity. Actually, the word used here is best translated not as proof. It's best translated as a guarantee. The word is actually pistine. It comes from the same word as pistis, which is translated faith. How many times have we heard Christianity criticized as blind faith? Paul is telling everyone who would listen here that this message is far from blind. He says that the basis of all faith in God is the person of Christ and the resurrection. God is so eager for us to know who he is and know that he's there that he actually came down and stared us in the face as Christ. This is not blind faith. It's not empty words. It's something that actually happened and that many people saw happen. Now, as I said, at the end of this talk, some mocked him, some believed, and a lot of others were curious enough to want to hear more. And I think that's what we should hope for when we share the gospel today. Some people we talk to are going to reject it outright. Some are going to hear it, and it's just going to click with them. And they're going to see things in a different way, and they're just going to have this moment where it all kind of becomes clear to them. But many others will simply say, can we talk again? I want to think about this. See, Paul's approach on Aries Hill is an example to us of how we can maximize the chance that the people who are listening to the message of Christ will say to us at the end, that was interesting. I'm not sure what to make of it. It's really kind of hard to swallow, but I think I'd like to hear more. I hope you have enjoyed this journey through the 17th chapter. I hope you have thought about it in terms of how it can assist you in your own witness and your own sharing of the gospel of Christ. I hope you've been able to learn from Paul's experience as he traveled down the east coast of Greece. And I hope it's really helped to bring you a little closer uh, to your own faith. If you're not a believer and you stuck with me through all eight parts, I hope it's given you more to think about. We'll have another series down the road. I hope you'll join us for that one too. Until that time, take care. God bless.